Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Today I've got an exciting episode to bring to you, a friend, a colleague, a mentor, and a, uh, a, a director of this entire process, <laughs> seemingly. Uh, Jeff has been a real big help through my entire process, so much so that I started my first episode of The Sacred Speaks with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. And uh, as you'll hear as you listen, then about episode 35 or 37, and now at episode 78. So thank you, Jeffrey Kripal, for your participating in this process and uh, for what you do. I have all your books, and I'll continue to read your work. Uh, so I want to get to a couple of housekeeping details, and then we'll jump into the episode, and I'll introduce Jeff. Uh, first of all, The Sacred Speaks, if you're new to it, welcome. You can check out the website at thesacredspeaks.com. There's a series coming up on YouTube pretty soon that begins, uh, I think, next month. Uh, and for those of you who've been paying attention, I'm sure you share in some of my uh, confusion around when this will actually be released. But we've been working hard, and it's uh, the date is set. So February, there will be some new, um, a new series coming out on the channel. If you're listening to this on audio, thank you for listening. Be sure to share, and uh, if you'd like, you can jump over to any of the podcast affiliates and like and share it. You can also go over to YouTube and watch it. Uh, there's a growing kind of energy and community on YouTube, and thank you all for, uh, for in, in whatever mode you're, you're listening to this. Thank you. So uh, The Sacred Speaks, the series, uh, be sure to check out The Sacred Speaks on Instagram. That's growing as well. And uh, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, which is a boutique integrative healing clinic in Houston that my wife and I started, is the uh, lovely benefactor of, uh, of this show. So I'm deeply appreciative of the ability to do this because of that work that we do over there. So check us out at the Center for HAS.com. You can also check out Modern Nations. They have uh, been kind enough to let me use their music through this entire process. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. If you hang out to the end of the episode, you'll hear the entire track of Clouds, which is the theme song for The Sacred Speaks. Thank you, guys. Next month, I'll be interviewing Dennis McKenna. I just watched a, a, an incredible documentary called True Hallucinations, featuring he and his brother, Terrence McKenna. And I'm reading, I've got a book of his, um, uh, Ethnopharmacological Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Uh, involved. It's a conference, and I'll read a number of those papers. And also, I've got a couple of his other uh, books and resources that will be digging into, including his McKenna Academy, and check that out. You can search it online. But I'll have more about what the McKenna Academy is as we proceed through the month. Then, yeah, check the documentary out. It was amazing. Also, I've got to check my notes here. Um, got it, got it. Oh, yes. Uh, the next episode will be with Bernardo Castrup, a, a fellow who's got two PhDs, I can't imagine, in uh, computer science and philosophy, will be talking about his, young, his book, Decoding Jung's Metaphysics, and also uh, a couple of his other books, one, uh, Why Materialism is Baloney, and this book I'm starting to read called Meaning and Absurdity, What Bizarre Phenomena Can Tell Us About the Nature of Reality. And, and that's a realm that Jeff Kripal uh, mines, fishes, swims in. So this really links together quite well, I think. Um, now, Jeff and I today talk about Esalen, and I want to direct you to, a uh, link will be below for this, but this is a documentary, can you see that? Yes. Um, a documentary called Supernature. It's quite good, you can catch it on YouTube also, and again, link will be below. We're, we're talking today about this book, Esalen, 
because I am teaching a class well, for many reasons, um, and and I learned an incredible amount about this uh, center of counterculture in uh, in America. But I'll be teaching a class in Esalen from the 28th of February to March 4th. We'll explore shadow and the psychology of fame. Uh, I, what we're looking at really is how we project unconscious contents onto others, um, institutions, people, uh, celebrities, p politicians, and hero figures, and also enemies. And so when we explore who these uh, potent images, uh, we can call figures, are to us, we can really unravel aspects of our own unconscious. And this can be a, a useful endeavor in that if we don't do that, we can end up projecting those onto other people. Inevitably, we all do, uh, but it's, I think, on some level very important for us to do the work of taking a look at what stirs within us, rather than, as Jeff and I will talk about, rather than trying to uh, imagine that they are always the holders of what stirs inside of us. A young got around this by saying there's always a hook, but, but if we are moved by someone or to someone, it's important for us to reflect on why that is in the first place. Okay, enough on that. Link will be below for the registration page. Please come on out to Big Sur and, uh, and join us. It will be on, uh, uh, from a Monday to a Friday, and I'm really looking forward to being out there because this has been a pretty important uh, place for me uh, in that I've projected a lot onto Esalen, uh, rightfully so. So I want to read Jeff's bio. And then we'll get started. Jeff Kripal is the Associate Dean of the School of Humanities and holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. He's the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, where he also serves as the Chair of the Board. Jeff is the author or co-author of 11 books, seven of which are with the University of Chicago Press, including most recently a memoir manifesto titled Secret Body, Erotic and Esoteric Currents in the History of Religions, a very good book. Uh, and I, we spoke a little bit about that in episode one. He's also served as the editor-in-chief at the Macmillan Handbook series on religion. He specializes in the study of extreme religious states and the revisioning of a new comparativism particularly as both involve putting the impossible back on the academic table again. He is pres presently working on th a three-volume study of paranormal currents in the history of religions and the sciences for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Super Story. Read his stuff. It's marvelous. You'll learn in a second if you have not stumbled upon Jeff Kripal. Check him out at Jeffrey Kripal, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-K, Jeffrey J, excuse me, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-J-K-R-I-P-A-L dot com. And also he's got a, a conference coming up called uh, The Archives of the Impossible. And it will be from March 3rd through the 6th. So whether you're in Big Sur with us or in Houston, you'll be well served. Uh, and I know that the um, Archives of the Impossible will be a rich uh, conference. I, I'm, this is a big conflict for me because I'd love to be there. Uh, but I'll be out in Esalen, and uh, either way, come, come, come to either one. Uh, what else? I think that's it. And um, yeah, I think that's it. So for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks for being here. And again, share all the episodes. I'm loving all the comments. And please, those of you who are commenting, um, I, I try my best to keep up with everything. I've also got a full clinical practice. And so things can, uh, 
I can take a little bit, little bit of time to get back. But I, I do pay attention to the comments. And thank you for your engagement. And thanks for being here. Well, Jeff, you, you deserve a... I need to custom make you a jacket because you're the most frequent member of this podcast. You started <laughs> us... You st- <laughs> You started off with episode one, and then I had you at about episode 35, and now you're at episode uh, 78. Thanks, so it looks like number three for me then. That's right. You're, yeah. you, get the, you get the jacket. It's not a jacket yet, though. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a koozie. Well, no, I don't, I don't want a koozie, John. <laughs> when you get the jacket, let me, let me have the jacket. You can keep the koozie. I don't, I don't huh. need it. Oh, this is a big deal, man. I, I, I'm on a budget here. I got. <laughs> if it's a big deal, it'd be on a jacket. If it's a koozie, it's not a big deal. Not a big deal. You're on. You're on episode. Your fifth episode. You will get a monogram jacket. I will believe that when I see it. Sure, uh, it'll be this jacket. I'll just <laughs> yeah. I'll sew it myself. Right. <laughs> and it won't fit, by the way. Yeah, you're like, hey. <laughs> uh, look, man. Thank you. Uh, I. It's so. You and I had our first conversation on this podcast. We were joking about writing and the in reading and the kind of um, distinctions between subject and object, and what happens when you're doing um, maybe not mystical reading, but when there's a mystical nature to the content, and something happens where the text is speaking to you and you're speaking to the text. It gets weird, and I have that when I read your books. So. What's even weirder is that I have that while reading your books, while reading your writing about that happening while people people are <laughs> reading. So these fractals thing it happens, and so thanks for doing that. Thanks for what you do. This is the book that we're talking about today, and the ideas within. Uh, and uh, Esalen's been a, an important space for you, and uh, now I'll be there in a as of now in a month. And uh, I, in a number of ways, I, I really have you to thank for that. So thank you. Thank you for um, teeing that oh, up. Man. Yeah. No, I'm delighted, John. You're, you'll be great there. You're, you are Esalen. You're, you're, you're Esalen in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's talk about what in the world that means. Uh, so I, as I was thinking about our conversation today, uh, of course, Esalen is a, is a literal place. And you have literally been involved there, but it gets much weirder than that. In that, um, you titled this book uh, "Eslin: America and the Religion of No Religion," and I want to start with that. What, what what is this title pointing us toward? And then we can talk about the actual place. But then, I really want to s- just kind of weave through the the ideas that were uh, grounded and anchored in uh, in Eslin. Well, first of all, that subtitle has gotten me into a little trouble. Um, we've had two events that, you know, one was actually canceled and one I had all the posters torn down on a university campus, um, probably because of that subtitle. Um, I certainly intend the subtitle. I think it's kind of the key to the whole shebang. So I don't want to pull back on that at all, you know, um, offense or not. Um the title comes from a professor of comparative religion at Stanford named Frederick Spiegelberg, who taught both founders of Esalen, Michael Murphy and Richard Price, in the 1950s. 
And Frederick wrote a book, I, I think I want to say it was 1950, 1948, somewhere in there called The Religion of, of No Religion. Um, you know, he was a comparativist like myself, and he had had a mystical experience in a wheat field that he wrote about in the third person. And he had some experience of the divine in and as the natural world. And as he continued on this walk, he encountered this little gray church, as he calls it. And he found himself horrified by this little church. And the reason he was horrified is because he had just had this sort of cosmic experience of God being everything and everywhere. And then he encountered this little building that claimed to encapsulate this divinity in some kind of exclusive fashion. So he developed this notion that he called the religion of no religion, which is very much based on medieval theology, on Meister Eckhart, on Frederick's own training in the comparative study of religion. And essentially what it means is that the divine is this infinite source of creativity that, that manifests as the physical world, but also manifests as the religions, none of which can be exclusively or literally true because in some sense, they're all true. They're all expressions of the same divinity. And so there's a kind of edge. It's a kind of dialectical theology in which the divine speaks through all religions, none of which are completely true. Um, so, you know, where does that land one? Well, it lands one at Esalen. You know, it lands one in this countercultural space of, or this contemporary space of being spiritual but not religious. And that, that's what I was trying to articulate in this book was how we got here and who the figures were that, you know, essentially built the foundation for this house we're all living in now. With, without really knowing yeah. how we got here or who, who, who built the walls or the basement. That was my experience reading it. I texted you the other day and I was talking about this psychological and spiritual religious current that I'm kind of able to locate myself in. And, you know, when you realize that these thoughts that you're having have been thunk before, you know, that it's it's simultaneously frustrating but also comforting you know i yeah no i actually i find it extremely comforting i i don't bear any illusions of originality <laughs> <laughs> i think people who think they're having original thoughts are just deluded frankly right. um all of these thoughts have been thought before and they've often been thought better than we, than we that's right than we thunk them <laughs> um and i you know, I wanted to just honor, I mean, there's there's a lot of people in that book. Um, and, you know, it was funny. I had two criticisms. The book came out in 07, and I had two basic criticisms. One is, it's way too long. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, that, yeah it's long. Yeah, the other criticism was, I'm not in it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, come on. I mean, those criticisms cancel each other out. And I, ha I had to not write about so many ideas and so many yeah. people, not because they weren't worthy of it, but because there wasn't room. And I, I needed to tell, a you know, every author needs to tell a story. And I was trying to tell a story. And But wow, the, the, the story could have been told different. It could have been told with different characters. Uh, there's many dimensions to it. But the basic message is, you know, the house we're, we're living in today, or at least some of us are living in, 
has a, a long American history um, that's at least 70 years old now and, and probably more like 170, you know, goes way back into the 1830s, really, um, or as far back as we want to go, really. Um, and that, that's what I was trying to get, get through. And I wanted, you know, this was during the Bush years, by the way, which looking back, we look back fondly on, you know, in a bizarre fashion. Um, but during those years, there were a lot of bombs being dropped and there was a lot of violence and there was a lot of, um, this was 9-11, you know, this was post 9-11. And I wanted to tell a different American story that wasn't about, you know, exceptionalism and wasn't about, you know, nationalism, that was about this kind of more global kind of countercultural reception of, of other cultures and other religions that is still selective. It's still very American in some ways, but, but it's a very different story than was being told in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and of course, it's a completely different story that's being told right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to back up for a second, because if anything, one, two maybe uh, lanes that we're going to explore are language and culture and so so staying in the uh, actually going to both the first question is you talked about comparativist um, what is comparativism from the religious context well you know spiegelberg okay so spiegelberg was a product of, of germany actually he was one of these intellectuals who basically fled for his life when the nazis took over and he was trained in essentially Protestant theology, medieval theology, but also early, the early comparative study of religion, which was at that time a pretty radical and fairly new orientation in which, again, all the religions were ideally put on an even table and were talked about as equals. There wasn't this sense of my religion was the evolutionary apex of all the other religions it was no these religions are all mm. on an even table and we're trying to figure out what the patterns are and what the what the universals are and what the particulars are you know we're trying to balance the part in the whole as it were and of course that requires the comparativists not to identify with any of the religions um, and so that's why it's new, and that's why it, it was radical in the 40s and 50s, and why it's still radical today. I mean, in some ways, we're still being asked to identify um, with, with a particular religion or culture, and, and comparison or comparativism really pushes against that, I think. Well, we're being asked to identify with gender sexuality <laughs> national like there's a wild i know of somebody recently who is a young person that was uh excluded from a group because she's not queer yeah it's a wild flip that we're experiencing yeah well there's so many identities that are being affirmed now for you know obvious social justice and historical reasons but that that is not where comparison takes one. Comparison takes one much more in the opposite direction where cultural and religious and sexual and gendered identities are all, of course, real and important, but they're all constructed. They're all constructed upon a, a base um, humanity that is, that is not just human, that is also non-human or superhuman in some fashion. 
Well, and then, and then thank you, Jeff. And I'm going to not say thank you every time you explain something. But <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I mean, sometimes I won't explain things. I'll just, you know, just, you know I'll just repeat the idea as, as if it's as if it's obvious or clear. <laughs> uh, the other term I think that's important is counterculture, just so we can tee that up. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, I, 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 I'm, of course, a college teacher and our students today were born in 2004, generally, 2003, maybe. And so, of course, they don't remember this history, but the counterculture was, was a broad-based movement that erupted in the States, in Europe, in Latin America, um, in the sort of the mid-1960s, really. And it was a reaction to a kind of global conservatism that had set in in the 50s. I mean, again, you, you and I weren't even around in the 50s, but the 50s were uh, a kind of post-war conservatism where people like Joe McCarthy and, and um, uh, you know, this, this sort of hunt for communists or, or intellectuals who, who weren't true patriots was, was common. Um, and the counterculture was a reaction, not just against that, but against kind of this whole staid conservatism of culture and was a was a kind of move towards a more ecstatic youth culture that had not only discovered the Asian religions, but was experiencing the civil rights movement, the early women's movement, the early gay rights movement, was being drafted into a war that no one really understood um, and that many, many young men were perishing in a in a in a country most Americans hadn't heard of a decade before. Um, so it was a very unpopular war. There was a draft. There were all these social movements. There were assassinations. Um, I mean, it was a very, very explosive century. And then you add to that um, psychedelics, which were really just coming on the cultural line. And that becomes kind of the rocket fuel of this, this cultural stream that really tries to literally ecstatically reverse course and create a different kind of culture that wasn't conservative or nationalistic, but was ecstatic and mystical and ecological to use a, another new word at that time. And that of course gets, there's a, there's a kind of reaction against that in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan and aligning the Republican Party with the moral majority and, and Christian fundamentalism. And that's essentially where we're still at is, you know, this kind of polarized culture in which one side is aligned with a kind of religious fundamentalism and the other sides align much more with a, with a, with a kind of secularism. And the counterculture is, I mean, where is it? <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of in the interstices or in the gaps and ruptures of our culture, but it's not anywhere obvious. Um, so I think I think that's that's a real kind of question here. When I you know when I published that book in 07, I went on a book tour, and the number one question I got is, "How do we do this again?" And and I, my answer was always, "I have no idea." Um, you it has to be the right time and it has to be the right people in the right place. And 
I'm not sure we, we, well, we weren't there in 2007, and I don't know if we're there at the moment either. Um, because the counterculture, you know, it had a transcendent dimension. It wasn't just a set of social or political protest movements, which are important. It also had this transcendent component uh, that was ecstatic and, and psychedelic and mystical, and, and it got framed in all kinds of ways. So there was a kind of multidimensional um, space being created that, that, frankly, I don't see so much today. It's difficult not to want to move into a social space in this conversation because what Esland seemed to do, and at one point quite literally did, was move into the political dimension to try to actualize or apply this kind of comparative, comparative spiritual approach to, to bring the opposites together, so to speak. Right. I mean, this is something that most people don't know about this history is that it's highly political and it had a profoundly social, socially active side to it, particularly with respect to the Soviet Union uh, and the Cold War. Um, you know, the Eslin activists started to engage the Soviets in the early 70s, and it was around parapsychology, by the way. So again, this was this vertical dimension. It wasn't, it wasn't just about Soviet American diplomacy. It was about Soviet people and, and, and American people meeting around shared passions and interests that involve things like telepathy and clairvoyance. And, you know, I mean, really wild stuff that, that could unite them and, and did not need to be politicized. Often was, of course, but didn't need to be. And Esalen has engaged in those Soviet American diplomatic efforts really for almost well, 50 years now. That's how long it's been. And they were, they were the ones who actually sponsored Boris Yeltsin's trip to the US in 89, where he really converted from communism into a, a much more capitalistic worldview. So, I mean, it had real impact. They had that little institute on the coast of nowhere um, really had world-class influence. It's not that it caused the collapse of the Soviet Union or anything like that, but it helped untangle and unravel this Cold War mentality that was so dangerous and so damaging and that people like myself do remember. Um, I mean, that if you, if you live through the 70s and 80s, particularly the 70s, they were scary. Uh, you know, an exchange of nuclear weapons was not an abstract theoretical possibility. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a threat that loomed over your young head uh, every day. I mean, I just assumed when I was, you know, 14 or 15 that I would never live to see 40. There was no way the world was going to end in a nuclear holocaust. And, you know, I could pretty much predict, as, I, as, as it were, how it would happen because it was all over the media. People were making films about it. It was in the it was in the cultural imagination. There were there were nuclear bomb sites, you know, all through Nebraska where I grew up, Sac Air Force Base where the president went in the case of an atomic um, war was just all of 120 miles from me. Uh, I mean, none of this was abstract. This was like real, um, and so it was terrifying. And this so this part of Esalen's history or this part of the counterculture history 
is really important to remember and 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 to foreground. Well, and it's hard it, as a psychologist, you know, it, it's difficult to bracket out what happens. You know, how do we take something that we're doing intellectually and spiritually, and how to bracket that from becoming political? Because there's no real distinction when you get in there, and so it. it that's well, yeah, what Esslin did, and by the way, there were lots of psychotherapists involved. Um, this was very sure. much part of this. The, the idea was what they called citizen diplomacy or track two diplomacy. And the idea was, was very simple, but, but kind of genius. It was basically people. It was, you know, don't try to represent the United States of America or the Soviet Union. Don't do that. Just get together as people and talk to each other and sit in hot tubs and get around a circle and have wine and go to Moscow and, you know, just be together. And, and that was the, that was the genius of what they did. They didn't try to be, you know, official diplomats. They weren't. It was, I'm sure most people listening here have seen Queen's Gambit. Um, Well, that, you know, Eslin never gets mentioned in there, and it's not about Eslin, but that, that ending that, you know, so humanizes the Russians and, and the Americans is so Eslin. That is so much about what they meant by citizen diplomacy is, you know, go play chess. You know, don't, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about communism or capitalism. Go play chess. And, and, and do it that way. And so that's, that's, what they, that's what they did. And that's what they're still doing, you know, whether people recognize it or not. Well, that, that's why it makes a lot of sense to me as a psychotherapist is the relational dimension of it. That, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a parenting approach that I've been trained in and I teach called trust-based relational interventions, you know, the, those approaches are let's get beyond... Um, how do I make somebody do something that I want them to do? And the, 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 the fundamental lens through which you see it is, how am I connected with this individual or group? How's the quality of our connection? And that's, that's where you start. And I've always thought it like, I, I think our governments need to have, uh, if, you know, philosopher kings and queens and you know, kind of uh, psychotherapeutic assistance and you know, recognizing how we tend to communicate when we get threatened when we feel threatened and and it's not good like to go go into any couple's therapy and try to get uh, some kind of connection when they are feeling a sense of threat and the first thing that I do in a couple session is try to connect in the moment to get that level of you know on on one, one level of it is a nervous system that's aroused and saying this is a scary place and so I'm behaving as if it's a scary place and that's not connective. Well, I, so before we go deep into the Russian-American uh, uh, relations, I, I do want to get into the historical Eslin, and because uh, the names that, like we were saying earlier, I mean, the names that are associated with this place are radical, and and that's what I think people need to hear is that whether it's a musician or a philosopher or a mythologist or a body worker or a, an erotic. Uh, bathtub scene that's Eslin. Yeah, I mean, we can of course name drop for the whole time. I mean, who, who, <laughs> who, whom do we want to talk about? 
well, of course, there were these three columns that you talked about. It was, um, it was psychedelic mysticism, mm -hmm. psychology, and the other one, I wrote it down, but I want to... It was probably in, um, uh, Asia. And, and, Tantra. And, yeah, in body. Uh, Asian yeah. religions or, or, or somatics. Yeah, I mean, so early Esalen, so it starts in the fall of 62. It's, it's not yet Esalen, by the way. It doesn't get called the Esalen Institute until a few years later. It's, it's, it's Big Sur Hot Springs. It's, it's essentially a motel, uh, bringing in lots of people to talk and, and to think together. And the early topics were certainly about psychedelic mysticism, which was very new then, and by which they meant essentially people having experiences of God or divinity by ingesting a plant, or God forbid, a man-made molecule, LSD, which was pretty new at that point. Um, and these things were legal, by the way. This is what we have to remember. We're not, we're not talking about Pro, a state of prohibition yet. These things were all legal. And the, the crisis that they, in, that they really catalyzed was not a legal one. It was a theological one. And the theological crisis was essentially, how does one have an experience of God on a plant or on a mushroom? That, that can't be. You know, we were taught that you had to suffer and you needed God's grace and you needed X, Y, and Z to have the right kind of religious experience. And now you're telling me you ingest, you know, a molecule or eat a plant and you're experiencing the same thing that our saints did? I mean, come on. Um, so that was the crisis. And there were, there were very articulate voices like Aldous Huxley mm -hmm. basically saying, yes, that is so. And there were other voices like R.C. Zayner over at Oxford saying, no, that's not so. <laughs> you know, R.C. was a good, they, they used to joke R.C. stood for Roman Catholic. Um, it didn't, by the way, but um, he, you know, he was a real defender of, of, of a kind of um, conservative uh, Catholic orthodoxy. But anyway, there were people in the culture who were trying to articulate this psychedelic mysticism, and there were people pushing back on it. And that was the conversation in the early 60s. And then the other one was all of these Asian religions, particularly early forms of Hinduism and Buddhism that were coming into the States through people like the bead poets, um, who were kind of the early, essentially a, a precursor of what would become the hippie movement of, of the 60s and 70s. Um, and then there was a real renaissance in psychology and psychotherapy. And, the Renaissance was really around people like Abe Maslow, who wanted to talk about what the human being looked like when it was healthy and ecstatic, and not just when it was sick or 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 troubled or neurotic or psychotic. He, you know, Abe wanted to talk about states of being and and um, kind of ultimate religious experience, you know. So that was a that was a new move. In other words, how do we talk about psychology in a positive or ecstatic fashion, and not just in a not just as a way to treat suffering or pain or neurosis, which of course is always important too. Well, and 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 I think one of the things I love about you know what I was reading in your book is that my my orientation to neurosis or pain, and again, it's not mine; it's a tradition I've learned, is 
that we want to query, look at, converse with, dialogue with, whatever is imagined to be at the root of the suffering, as opposed to trying to get out of it, trying to make it go away. You know, so that there seems to be, and again, you and I can get into these kind of dual structures that show up in, in social spaces and, and consciousness, but th the approach of saying, this is pathological and I want to get rid of it, therefore reducing my anxiety, doesn't really work all that well. And, but, but something really interesting happens when we start to dialogue with these parts of ourselves that may be viewed to be undesirable. Well, they, you know, so the two, the, the sort of the two intellectual pillars of Esalen were Aldous Huxley and Abe Maslow. And, you know, Huxley was talking about human potentialities, that there were aspects of the human being that were not recognized. And these were, by the way, parapsychological aspects, which he was very learned in, but also psychedelic and mystical aspects of consciousness. And then Abe Maslow came along and he was talking about self-actualization and essentially how to actualize, you know, the potentialities that Huxley was talking about. And so when you put these two languages together, this language of human potential and this language of self-actualization, you know, it kind of goes boom and you get, you get Esalen and the counterculture. And of course, Abe though, Abe Maslow was, you know, he was a typical academic. He was a, he was a Jewish psychoanalyst from like Brandeis in Boston or something, you know, and, but he just loved Michael Murphy and he loved Esalen and he'd go out there and he'd, he'd mentor Mike and, you know, kind of walk him through things. And, and there's this heavy, heavy Jewish psychoanalytic component or strand that comes through Esalen, not just because of Abe, but Fritz Perls and, and uh, Wilhelm Reich and, you know, a whole set of, of early psychotherapists and body workers that were really kind of radicalizing psychoanalysis and radicalizing this, this notion of libido or, or cosmic energy that, that Reich called, called orgone. And we're trying to get people to experience it. Um, that's probably not possible today. That's, that's probably illegal, um, but that's, that's, and probably not wise um, professionally, but that's that's what they were doing in in the '60s for sure. Well, that is something that I uh, we're we're obviously in a big powerful change right now. But then to, to to have these governing bodies that legislate things like touch and connection and ecstatic experience, it does seem like a kind of an assault on religion or, re, or not just religion, but the ecstatic experience within religion that seems to be misunderstood by every religious tradition that seems to orient itself around ecstatic experience. Well, the, so the, the general language in the 60s was that the 50s were repressed. I mean, again, it was a psychoanalytic language. And of course, there was a lot, <laughs> there was a lot of reason for that language. I mean, the 50s were repressed. I mean, people didn't feel emotions mm -hmm. that they were supposed to feel or, or, or did feel in the 60s. Um, and a lot of that repression was around sexuality and gender, of course. And the counterculture was no, you know, it was no heaven for gender equity or, or sexual freedom either. It had its own, it had its own prejudices and its own limitations, but it was, it, it, it was not the 1950s, let me put it that way. And even, you know, someone like Wilhelm Reich, who, 
By the way, Reich, for the, for the listeners who don't know him, Reich was a disciple of Freud and <laughs> Freud, Freud kicked him out basically. And then, you know, he goes to, he goes to Germany and he tries to get the, the, the Nazis to see the truths of, of Freud and they kick him out. So Reich is a figure who's kicked out of both Freud's inner circle and then Nazi Germany. And he lands in Maine of all places in the US and he discovers what he calls orgone, which is this invisible blue energy that animates not only human bodies, but the stars and results in miraculous healings and experiences of divinity and the whole thing. And <laughs> the US government literally shows up at his laboratory in Maine and confiscates all of his orgone boxes, destroys them, burns his books and throws them into prison where he dies. He dies a few weeks, few months later of a heart attack in, in prison for writing and talking about Oregon, basically. So that's, that's what the 1950s were like. The 1960s is people essentially taking Reich and like saying, this guy was right. This is, this is really where it's at. And, you know, they, they ran with Reich essentially in the 60s, even though Freud and the Nazis and the Americans all essentially persecuted him and and threw him out or threw him in jail. Well, so it seems the relationship is between the more repressive, conservative, and restrictive things get, the more the unseen world becomes pretty seductive and interesting. Well, that was this again. That was the sixties. Sixties reacting to the fifties, I think, John. and then it all kind of unravels. You know, at the end of the sixties, through drug use and, and violence and rock and roll, and then it kind of it gets weird in the seventies. I mean, I really remember the seventies. Seventies is the era of wild cartoons and uh, bad carpet in your parents' rec room and you know, disco and things like crazy, crazy things like that. And so it's kind of this sort of late glow of the counterculture. And then the 80s is this sort of reversal of, of all of that. And as is the 90s and of course, into the, into the new millennium. So. So you mentioned Huxley earlier and I've always you really introduced me to a lot of his work. You've written a lot about Huxley, so thank you. There's another one. Yeah, and, uh, he's one of my heroes, John. Um, and so the what comes to mind though is is another principle or um, you know axiom, I guess, at at Esslin, Esslin is um, the filter theory of consciousness, because it seems like everybody was kind of agreeing that behaviorism was doing what it was doing and there's another oppressive dynamic that was happening and now we're seeing that consciousness isn't created and originate in the brain it might be something different would you speak a bit about that well yeah i mean first of all huxley for me is a perfect example of my my own maxim which is the truth must be depressing and what i mean by that is what gets what gets accepted by our culture is what's depressing or or a downer and so if you've read any aldous huxley you've read his dystopian novel brave new world which is his downer that's that's his most depressing novel in some ways the novel that he really believed in and he really thought represented what he 
what he truly was convinced of late in life is a novel called Island, which is his last novel and nobody ever reads it. Mm -hmm. And so I make this argument that, look, I mean, we read Brave New World, but we don't read Island. And that's a reflection of us. That's not a reflection of Aldous Huxley. Um, Huxley came to the filter. The Huxley was uh, the grandson of T.H. Huxley, who was often called Darwin's bulldog. The Huxleys were a kind of elite, not kind of, the Huxleys were an elite science family in England. And Aldous was trained in elite private schools and was partially blind. And so was kind of experimenting with alternative um, healing techniques and, and started out his life, his writing life, very secular, very frankly depressing and kind of snarky. And right around World War II, he became, I think, very disgusted with human violence. He became a pacifist. And he also became the world's most articulate perennialist. He began to argue that there was this perennial truth in the world's religions, and that that truth was essentially the divinity of, of humanity, that there was no distinction between the human spirit and, the, and God or the cosmos. And this was the kind of the perennial truth for him. That's about 1945 or so. And people don't realize that that perennialism itself is an anti-war, anti-European, kind of anti-Christian um, doctrine, really, that Huxley pursues. He then, in 1953, I think, is when he does it, he contacts a psychiatrist by the name of Humphrey Osmonds, who's up in Canada, and asks him if he will give him some mescaline. He wants to know what it's like um, to, to take this, this molecule. And so Osmonds, Humphrey Osmonds comes down to LA and administers mescaline to Huxley and it shocks Huxley, just shocks him. Um, he thinks before he takes it, that what's going to happen is essentially a light show in the in the in the brain. You know, the, the chemical is going to play with his brain and he's going to see all kinds of fancy figures and colors, and it's going to be this trippy thing that's in his head. And that's not what happens at all. Uh, instead, what happens is he has a kind of direct encounter with the physical world, and he claims that the the molecule somehow shut down his brain's um, filtering system and allowed all, you know, more of reality to get in. And so he writes this little book called The Doors of Perception, sort of arguing this, this point that the brain does not produce consciousness, it, it filters or reduces consciousness. And so what a psychedelic like mescaline does, it doesn't, it doesn't produce well, it can produce a trippy vision, but what it does at its best is it shuts down that filter temporarily so that the human being can encounter more reality. That the, in other words, a psychedelic state is potentially more real than the state you and I are in right now, or at least I'm in. I don't know what state you're in, John. You, you, you might be on LSD for all I know. Yeah, um, I'll never know. 
I'll never know. But I know I'm not. And so I know I'm in a really banal, dull world right now. And um, for Huxley, that's not that's not the real world. You know, that's the banal, dull world of, of the human sense sensorium. And what a good masculine dose will do is, is shut that down so that the real can, can rush in. So that's the argument. And that's Huxley's version of it. In 54, he writes this little book called The Doors of Perception, which becomes, it's little. It's about this, you know, it's a little thin little volume. It's one of the most important texts in the entire counterculture. It's probably the Bible or one of the Bibles of the counterculture uh, along with the novel Island and, and Blake, William Blake of all people. Um, but um, so that's what the filter thesis, the filter thesis basically says the brain does not produce consciousness. It reduces consciousness. Well, that's been an endeavor. I mean, I read um, the irreducible mind and beyond physicalism and what, what you guys have been up to trying to answer these questions. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that 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 I think is part of a not I mean it's a public aspect of Eslin, but it's a, a private aspect of what those in the kind of inner circle of Eslin have been trying to understand. And well, it just it just has massive implications. I mean, if the brain felt reduces and doesn't produce consciousness, that means that death isn't final it means that consciousness may well survive bodily death and that then all kinds of of course things follow from that um it also means a lot of these ecstatic states and psychedelic states they might actually be really really important and they might actually have something to tell us about how the mind works and what a human being is and so that that then plays out into you know everything really come on absolutely well, I, I gotta tell you this is like my this is the stuff when I'm reading your book that I notice that I'm vibrating. Yeah. Like I, th there's some aspects of I'm like, I'm reading. This is important. Good historical context. Great. But then this, when we get into Terrence McKenna territory and uh, the Tao of physics, uh, Capra, you know, the, the, that I was like, okay, this is, this is great. And, and I know you like that play land a lot. Yeah, I do. So, so let's kind of continue that for a second. Can we, can we just set up what, what reality is for, I mean, obviously <laughs> that's a big question mark, but when you say a term like reality, what do you mean? Well, I mean, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> you know, okay. So let's stick with the, you got to earn your jacket, Jeff. Come on, yeah, let's, yeah. Uh, let's get into yeah. it. <laughs> I got to work for this this apocryphal jacket. I'll never, I'll never. Um, you know, look if if the brain is reducing and not producing, um, it essentially means that the human body and brain are are splitting reality essentially into an inner and an outer world, and that what's happening in a mystical state or a psychedelic state is the person is realizing that there aren't actually two dimensions of reality. There's one dimension of reality and. And we, we live our lives in a kind of illusion, thinking we're trapped inside a body when, when in fact we're not. Um, that reality with a capital R now is this sort of monistic uh, or non-dual reality that, that, that exists whether we do or not. And so the whole game then becomes, how do we step aside and how, 
how do we temporarily remove our, ourselves, our egos, so that we can realize this, this reality with a capital R? I mean, that, beca that became the, the, the goal, certainly in the counterculture, and certainly at Esalen, um, it, it may not be the goal now. And it may, it's often dangerous, of course, um, because you know, stepping aside can, can be dangerous. Um, but it just it just invokes all kinds of things like near-death experiences and again psychedelic experiences and religious experiences and you know ecstatic experiences in general. Ecstasy literally means to step outside oneself. It literally it comes from the Greek ecstasis to stand outside and and not be not be an ego, not be a body mind, be to be to be something else. Um, so I that's attractive to some people. And you can really think about the counterculture as basically the argument that consciousness is primary and ecstatic experience is the goal of a human life. And so let's pursue those kinds of experiences. And I, um, when, sorry to interrupt. Go on. Well, and you can think of conservative culture as the opposite of that is no, Consciousness is not primary. The, the social person is primary. And the goal of life is to be a good person and, you know, to have a family and to live in a society and to obey authority and, you know, to be, to be dutiful, as it were, to, to the social system you're in. So those are, two, those are two very different models of what a human life is about or should be about. And, of course, they both, they both have truth to them because we... We have to live in society and we have families and relationships. And I mean, you're a psychotherapist. I mean, those are all really important things to honor, but there's something in the human being that is not any of that. <laughs> and, and it needs to be affirmed as well, I think. When you say danger and danger, I was just talking to a fellow named Dr. Miles Neal was my last interview. And we talked about uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Tantra and we're interestingly the Greek tradition. I like that you brought in the Greek with the ecstasis and the 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 danger uh, and and even referencing what we were talking about, uh, Miles and I, is the nihilism that can happen with if life is an illusion, then whatever. I mean, f f fuck your reaction and your emotion and. There can be kind of a depersonalization with uh, with that. I'm, is that what you mean when you say dangerous? Well, no, it's not. I mean, what I mean is, like, take a near death experience. You know, near death experiences are literally ecstatic. I mean, people literally leave their bodies and have these extraordinary experiences, but they almost freaking die. You know, I mean, it's dangerous, yeah. you know, you and you don't get a near death experience without almost dying. I'm sorry, you don't, you don't. So you need you need this really dangerous moment to have this ecstatic experience in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, not in all, of course, but the thing that was so revolutionary about psychedelics is that they gave people essentially a way to have a traumatic uh, experience on call <laughs> and and they didn't they didn't have to die you know or at least some usually they didn't um so 
you know, because you could spend your whole life meditating and praying and never really have an experience of God, or you could <laughs> take a mushroom and, you know, meet your maker in, in minutes. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's wow. Hey what man, the we... LSD I'm on right now, I, as far as I'm concerned, you're my maker and we're, uh, yeah, we're there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. And so it helps. Um, yeah, but no, yeah. that's what I meant by danger. And yeah. You know, also, John, I mean, people don't, we've talked about this before, but people just don't realize that much of the history of religious experience is, is terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's one of, of, of fear and terror. And I think it is, it is so because the human ego is generally not ready to let go of itself. It's, it doesn't want to be dissolved. It, it's, it's, it's a scary experience to encounter something so large and vast that one feels like one's going to get absorbed into it. Well, uh, let's get into that for a second, because in, in psychedelic experience, there is an experiencer. And so, but, but people that go into psychedelic experience talking about dissolving the ego, but there's still an awareness there. Yeah. It's just not the typical awareness of that narrative of here I am, I'm John, and this is my boundary, and so on and so forth. Right. Well, yeah, and sometimes, of course, I mean, yeah, usually there is an awareness there of having it, having an experience. You know, the experience is something you you have, but not always. I yeah. mean, you know, I, I used to study this this Hindu saint named Ramakrishna, and he had this really funny story about this salt doll he called it a salt doll it was a doll made of salt and one day this salt doll was going to wander into the ocean to see what the ocean was like and you know <laughs> it of course wanders into the ocean and it just becomes the ocean and then you know it magically reconstitutes and walks out of the ocean someone says well what was that like and he's like i don't know <laughs> I mean, I don't have, you know, it's, I was one with it. I was one with Brahman. I don't, I, I wasn't even an experience because you're, it's, there's no dualism there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. That's where it becomes terrifying or becomes, I think, scary to people. Um, I feel that too. I mean, most, most I've heard people say often, like, man, I really want an experience of egolessness. And I, I kind of think, well, be careful. Yeah, be careful. Be careful what you ask for. And, you know, of course, someone like Harvey Aronson, a psychotherapist here in town, he's, you know, he's really, he talks a lot about American Buddhists who go on and on about not having a self. But, you know, the whole point of a lot of psychotherapy is to have a self. And to develop one and to be in healthy relationships with other selves. So uh, we may not have selves at the end of the day, but we sure have them now. And and it's important. It's important to, you know, be a self as well as maybe to not be a self. Well, on this note, will you talk a little bit about your experience and your research into um, certain Myers, but... Um what happens with the implication that our brain does not create consciousness, but we filter it, then what happens beyond this ego? Yeah. So you're a collector of stories here. So wow. would you just kind of go? Yeah, you know, go? yeah I, I think that's a big, it's an open question. I mean, so there's a lot of conversation uh, of what happens to us when we die. And 
I think it's one argument to say consciousness survives, and it's a, it's a very different argument to say that the person survives. And, and so for me, that's, the, that's kind of where the tree or the branches separate is, are we talking about the survival of consciousness or are we talking about the survival of, of the personality? And I, I'm very skeptical of the latter. Um, I'm, I'm very much convinced of the former. Um, and part of it is my, you know, involvement in Asian religions for my early career around reincarnation and karma theories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, most of the world actually holds some reincarnation model, which I think is perfectly rational and, and reasonable. If you've had children, reincarnation makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, you have to have two children, but have two, and you're like, where the fuck did they come from? And why, who are these people? You know, I mean, it's like, they're just totally different. You know, I, before having children, I, I thought, oh, it's, it's a blank slate. And we sort of write on this blank slate. No, no, that's, that is there, so wrong. Yeah. That is so wrong. Let me tell you that that person pops out all there. And as a parent, you can pretty much screw the person up or let the person come out. I think that's really what a, a parent is. But anyway, getting back to reincarnation, if reincarnation is the case, then who is the person? You know, I mean, if I was somebody else in my last life and somebody else in the, next, the life before that and so on and so on, I was all those people. So who's the person? What? What? What's surviving there? Well, something's surviving, but not Jeff, Jeff the ego. Mm -hmm. God, I hope not. I, wh why would Jeff the ego need to be eternal? That, to me, that's truly bizarre um, and not at all necessary. And so I, I think most people's conception of the afterlife is very naive um, and it's very ego-based. And I just... I just don't buy it. I, I, I think it's much more complicated than that and, and probably a lot richer than that. Um, so that's where I would go, you know, kind of down the rabbit hole. Um, I, I, think, I think this is where the filter thesis takes you. I mean, if you're a filter, you're a filter, John. Yep. You're filtering something else. You're the, the, the sun coming through the glass, the, the stained glass window ain't the stained glass window. And, and the Wi-Fi coming through your smartphone ain't the smartphone. You, you can throw your smartphone against the wall or run over it with a car. And guess what? The Wi-Fi doesn't care. And, and it doesn't change anything. It just renders that phone no longer capable of picking up the signal. So, so to me, this has just massive implications for how we think about a life, how we think about death, how we think about suffering, how we treat each other, uh, how we how we how we treat each other as we die. Um, I mean, just think about the implications. It well, just goes what, what what I think this study of Eslin and America and counterculture, religion of no religion. What's interesting to me is that I'm doing a study right now on Bronze Age magic and Greek, and I'm learning Greek and. These were people that understood a lot more of, of this. You know, they, 
they had these orientations like no no concept for coincidence you know there weren't accidents there 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 wasn't chance it the attitude that you had to the events and the movements of your life was total well i project but i imagine to be different than how we approach it now and it seems like that's where we get into counterculture because there's something back to blake there's something that happened with our empirical model of science that reduces you know, our capacity of understanding reality to that which can be measured, observed, and replicated. And that seems to be kind of, at least that's what I hear people talk about as the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the scapegoat. You know, like w- when I listen to folks talk about what, what's our issue, what's the problem, they'll say, well, materialism and you know, scientific reductionism in a way that um, cancels out any possibility of an unseen, mysterious aspect of reality, uh, calling it epiphenomenal or, um, or or the like. You know, what do you say about that? Well, to go back to Eslin, I mean, Eslin and the counterculture in some ways we're very science friendly and we're we're fascinated by science. Uh, particularly quantum physics and the physics of consciousness in the, in the 1970s and, and 80s. That's a, you know, a work like Fritjof's The Tao of Physics or the Physics of Consciousness meetings at Esalen. Um, so I don't, I don't think any of this is against science. I think it is questioning whether a kind of scientism that you're describing, you know, a kind of reduction of reality to that which can be measured and controlled and, and tested and proved is, is a vast narrowing and vast impoverishment of what is actually the case. Um, I mean, the sciences have no way of really taking into account inner experience or subjectivity. They, they treat everything as an object, as something that can be measured. So, you know, I tell this joke in the book about the two behaviorists who just had sex. Remember the joke, John? Yes. Yeah. What did, what did the well, one... How was it for you? Yeah. What, what did the one behaviorist <laughs> say to the other? And it was, well, it was good for you. Was it good for me? <laughs> you know, it's like, that is the dumbest, that is the dumbest thing to say after two orgasms in the, in the world. <laughs> That, that's really where science takes you, or that's where behaviorism takes you, is you can only talk about behavior that you can see, right, and measure. So you can see and, and measure in some way the orgasmic experience of the other person, but you can't, you can't communicate your own. Um, well, that, that's the, behaviorism is, is true in one respect. It's when we turn the idol into the icon, that, well, behaviorism as a as a dog as an absolute dogma is, of course, you can only you can't even talk about consciousness. You can't talk about interiority. It doesn't. Ex- it's irrelevant. You know, um, that's where it becomes so damaging, because of course, all we re- we're entirely interiority. We're we're <laughs> you and I are entirely experience. You know, we're we're not. We're, we're interior subjectivities and so that's what gets cut off and you know the counterculture listen I mean the counterculture the thing about it was 
you know, it, it was kind of a combination. I like to say it was kind of an alchemical coming together of a lot of older intellectuals who had been saying these things for a long time and a youth culture that was ready to listen to them and ready to promote their ideas. And if you would have removed the youth culture or the intellectuals, you wouldn't have the counterculture. Um, so it's not that the counterculture was necessarily anti-intellectual, but it had a lot of young people in it that were not intellectuals and were not, you know, they might've been against ideas in general. So you have these, what I'm trying to say is there are these different components going on. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things going on at once, but there is this heavy science kind of lineage that goes through this, the, these decades. And it's exciting to people because it's new science. You know, it's about quantum mechanics. It's not about Newtonian physics. It's about DNA and, and evolutionary spiritualities. It's not about, you know, adapt, adaption and, and Darwinian um, randomness. Um, I mean, it's, there are new ideas on the table and there are, people are putting them together with these religious ideas that are much older and they're coming up with new forms of, of spirituality and worldview that, that are very much still with us. I love that motto of no one captures the flag. It seems like that's one of the most important uh, lenses to, to create because if we if there's something inside of us that tends to colonize or make make our conscious experience concrete, then we have to have principles, I think, to to keep us loose and and not ever falling into a kind of uh, uh, concrete fallacy. Uh, I yeah, and I sure I mean that's to me is one of the most difficult. Um, positions to to articulate today because you know our present culture is very much about capturing the flag it's very much about people being right and, and feeling righteous and and asserting cultural or religious or gender or sexual identity and I think what this movement was about is is moving outside or, or beyond all of that and I think that's a difficult thing to say today um, because people don't want to hear it. It's it's a countercultural thing to say again, that that you know we're not we're not just our bodies, we're not just our identities, we're not just our cultures. What do you? What, I I want to explore that because it it what bothers me is if we feel we can't have open exploratory discussions, then that's a problem. And if we can't at least bump up against each other. Like, for example, I'll, I'll give a good example. Um, I have learned that ethics are created in conflict. If you watch children, and if I'm a, if, if I'm a teacher right in the playground and I see some kids that are playing a game and they start arguing with each other and get into a fight, and I walk in there and take the ball away and just say, you guys are off the playground for two weeks. I've done nothing to help them learn how to communicate, learn how to have conflict resolution, learn how to, to navigate the ethics of the game. And, and to me, one of the problems that we're, we're encountering socially is that we just want to take the ball and tell everybody on the other team to fuck off and feel good about ourselves. Well, we don't want to recognize that we're playing the same game. Yeah. 
there is there is no ball there's no ball um i mean (laughs) everybody's playing their own game and and they don't want to hear about they don't want to hear that we're playing the same game um i don't know i think i mean i work with young people all the time in the classroom i i think there's a kind of implicit not knowing or or limitation to a lot of this i mean one, one of the things i often say is justice um implies sameness you know if you want justice what you want is to be treated the same while being different so justice is a, is a is a balancing and it's a no negotiation between difference and sameness but you don't have there's no such thing as justice if there's nothing shared or nothing the same so i i think a lot of these um a lot of the criticisms today and a lot of the protest movements are implicitly about sameness, even when they're also about difference. And I, and I think we just need to learn to balance those somehow and, and to talk about both of them and not just the one. You know, in the past, we've made the mistake of talking too much about sameness and suppressing differences. And mm-hmm. what that really means is suppressing people who are different. But today we're sort of doing the opposite thing. We're suppressing sameness and we're talking only about differences. And the danger there is we, we become Martians to one another. We become completely, we become dehumanized. With and no I, shared language. With nothing to share. And so I think both of those are mistakes and are dysfunctional and unsustainable. Um, but I, I don't know, John, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proposing any solution or wisdom here i think it, it is a kind of thing that swings you know yeah um and i'm i'm part of the, i mean we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution we're, none of us are innocent there's no such thing as innocence here in my in my mind so what is the counterculture today well i think we have a counterculture but i don't think it has a vertical dimension I think it's entirely horizontal. I think it's very much about social and political and gender and sexual and racial identity, which is a which is which is a horizontal kind of argument. What we lack is this vertical dimension that can unite us all. Um, and so, what I what I think is truly countercultural today is to talk about that vertical dimension. Um, and that's that's what, of course, I'm trying to do. And but how do you talk about that without affirming some people's vertical dimension and not other people's? Um, I think that's that's a t- that's a tough one. Well, yeah, I see the split because you 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 inherit your even your language has to select for something. We have to yeah. measure something. We have to identify something. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't have easy solutions. I don't. I'm not proposing an easy solution. I. I, I think just the more we know about our histories and the more conversations we have, the better off we are. Um, but I don't, there's no prediction about where that conversation is going or, or, the, or, or, or some proposal for a solution because I, I don't have one. I mean, people often ask me for one and I say, I'm not, I'm not a religious leader. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an activist. I'm not a, I'm not a social uh, activist or a religious leader. I, I'm an intellectual. I, I see problems and I want to ask better questions, but I'm not capable of offering you solutions. You should, other people should do that. I'm all for that. 
Well, but, but you you are in a good position to make observations that other people aren't necessarily able to make, given their given your history and your perspective. You you do have a lens that's that can at least acknowledge and observe the questions that need to be asked by others. I, I hope so. I hope I have something to offer. I mean, I get, I'm sure I get dismissed for lots of reasons, but you know. So I was I was canceled way before there was a cancel culture. I'm glad you said I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started out my career in the '90s as the the poster boy for the hated and harassed scholar religion, and it was really Hindu fundamentalists who 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 not were trying but did cancel me. Your uh, your books were burned, right? Well, I don't know if they were burned, but they they were certainly effectively banned. They I don't know if they they were never politically or officially banned, but who couldn't get them in, in India for, for, for sure. And I, you know, the truth is I left a whole field because I was canceled. And that's our language today. That was not our language in the 90s, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I'm very sensitive to that. And sensitive in, in, in a way that I mean, I'm very suspicious of canceling anyone or anything that you disagree with. Um, and I don't think there are any pure voices. I think everyone is failed and frail and everyone has skeletons in their closet. And mm -hmm. once you start canceling people, you might as well cancel everyone because it, everyone has those, those skeletons or other skeletons in their closet. And um, I just, I feel that so strongly in my own, you know, discipline. I mean, if we started to cancel people we didn't like because of their political associations or their the views of race or colonialism, we'd cancel the whole discipline. You know, I mean, I, we'd go as, all the way back to the Greeks, we'd be canceling the Greeks. Um, so I, and maybe that's what they want us to do. But to me, that that's that goes too far. And I think that's self destructive, actually. Well, this is a, obviously a, another thread in the conversation. But one that makes total sense that you and I are going into, given what happened naturally in the evolution of Eslin as a place and an idea, they they were having these kinds of conflicting discussions. There were two people that started it that didn't always agree, and they had to find conflict management tools. And if anything, one of the idols that we worship is the idol of political systems that essentially are conflict management tools. I mean, after all, our governments and our ideology, even whatever the American dream is in the Constitution, is a means by which we can, uh, in a healthy way, come together, everybody feel like we have a seat at the table so that we can work through our differences, not to create a colonial sameness, but to honor in a sort of compromising fashion. That's what our judicial branch does. You know, we go, we sue somebody and we're saying, okay, how do we work through this and navigate and what do you need and what do you need? We do it in divorces. We do it in um, law. And so that, I think we forget that, that, that we, I, I like what you said earlier about scientism, because if anything, what we've done is turned our, our, uh, our modes of, um, what do I want to say there? Our, our modes of observation and uh, and movement like we do in science, right? Science is a, um, is a, what I want to say, I'm looking for, my brain is pot. 
it's a, <laughs> it's a methodology. That's what I want to say. It's a way of knowing. And it's very effective and very powerful, but it's certainly not complete. And I think that's where we make the mistake. We, we cease to use it as a tool and we, we think it's a descriptor of all of reality. Okay, so uh, thank you for this. That was really nice to to get into, and I I hope anybody listening, if and this is what I do in psychotherapy, I hope anybody listening, if for any reason any of this gets your blood boiling, that you take a look at that. Like what we do in psychotherapy is not say, oh yeah, let's you know let's get rid of that person. It's tell me what's happening in you right now. Let's try to understand where that comes from. Well, you know, te teaching and psychotherapy are, are, of course, related, John. I mean, that's ideally what you want to have in the classroom is so you don't want to have easy conversations. You know, you don't want to just affirm each other's assumptions and prejudices and views. You want to challenge one another's assumptions and prejudices and views. And again, that's why I love comparison. And... I often tell my graduate students, you have no business doing a PhD in comparison until you've lost at least two worlds. And the reason I say that is if you're still in your original world, you, you probably think it's adequate. Mm -hmm. You probably think it has the answers and you know what, it doesn't. But if you've lost that world, you've probably just jumped into another. And now you think it has the answers. But once it fails you, <laughs> if you're like most people, if you're like me, you're going, like, no, wait a minute. Yeah, hang on. Hang on. What, <laughs> what makes you think this third world is going to answer everything that the first two did? And then at, it's at that point that you become a real intellectual, I think, and you become a real comparativist and you refuse to land, essentially. And you say, no, I'm pretty sure any worldview or religion or culture or whatever it is, is, is going to be helpful for some things and is going to occlude or be unhelpful with others. And I'm not going to do that. And, and I think that's the no one captures the flag response, John, yeah. that you had earlier. And I think that's really difficult today because people are so certain of their their positions and their values, and they have landed. They've not only landed, they've dug in. And wow, I, it's hard. It's hard to, to move people when they've, they've dug in like that. So, you know, I, you know my own history of psychotherapy. I, I think that does carry over into the classroom. And I think the classroom is not psychotherapy, but it, it, there, there, are, there is some overlap here in the sense of challenging people and creating a safe space in which people can articulate difficult positions and voices and, and frankly, ab abandon or, or resign their one position and take on a new one. That, that's, a tough, that's a tough thing to do for a young person. It's a hard realization to realize that the culture you grew up with is, is not omniscient or infallible. But guess what? It's not. Guess what? It's not. Right. Um, I don't care what your culture is. It, it's not infallible and it is not omniscient because no culture is. Well, yeah, because there, there are trajectories and conclusions. Any culture has particular traditional pathways 
that you, and I think this is kind of what I imagine um, Plato is getting at by saying we, the idea has us. We don't, we don't have the idea. We are playing out, and, and, and that was my experience, I think, the kind of humbling experience when I look at this book of yours and notice all these thoughts that I tend to contemplate, and I write about my journal, and I talk to people about my office, and I, I teach classes on, and I go, holy shit, yeah, the, the thinker's being thought by thoughts that aren't the thinker. And that's a, that's a weird. Well, I think anybody who, again, anybody who thinks for a living understands really well that one doesn't think, (laughs) (laughs) right? I mean, one is thought and, and so there's a passivity to it. And (laughs) yes, uh, (laughs) I, I often tell people the people often ask me how I write so much. And I often say, Oh, that's easy. It's caffeine and neurosis. (laughs) in the but in the right doses you, if yeah. you if there's too much caffeine or too much neurosis you can't you can't see it. the page <laughs> but really when after the joke and i get more serious about it i'm like you know what what real writing is about is trance it's it's about entering a kind of mild trance state and letting what you know just do its thing and and getting out of the way it's what people call flow mm-hmm people call being in the zone. I mean, all of these are metaphors, but there's, they're basically all about the same thing. And that's, we don't, thought is not an active mechanical thing that one does like a computer. This is why I actually, this is another conversation, but I actually don't believe that computers can ever be conscious. Um, I don't think cognition is consciousness at all. I don't, I don't think at all the same. So you can get AI and you can have them do all kinds of mimicky smart things but they'll never ever be conscious and so consciousness for me is is about you know stepping away and letting letting these thoughts just just come and 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 you you write i mean now we type we used to we used to do this right oh i love it i love this oh now you still write so see i i abandoned that a long time ago but um yeah there's a passivity and and there's a it's a hum it's a humility too actually. Well, you're you're wonder you're doing a great service here because you're pointing this conversation to the next interview I've got, which is with Bernardo Castro next week. Oh, okay. And so that's going to be our subject matter. I, I guarantee you, we're going to be looking at computational models and AI, and because uh, his expertise is uh, computer engineering and philosophy, and so. But he would say something very similar. I, I'm listening to a conversation between he and John Verveke, a cognitive scientist, and it's a wonderful conversation. But they're in what I'm listening to right now. They're actually battling uh, in a very a- 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 academic fashion, which is to say they're having differences, but not having to kill each other. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> Right, and if I was in on that conversation, I would I'd be sitting with Bernardo. I'd be like, he, he, totally, no, yeah, no way, man, no way, never going to happen. The, you know, consciousness ain't cognition. Sorry. Well, and that gets into a really oh, and exactly what they're talking about. What is intelligence, and what are? But this, even back to what I was saying earlier, there's something that's happening right now. Peter Kingsley's writing about it. Uh, Brian Marescu is writing about it. Uh, fella, I'm t- Amon Hillman is writing about it. These are all folks that are looking at Bronze Age magic, what happened in Greece, 
and how that has not been included in our mystical traditions. And Miles and I, we were talking last last time, last conversation, and you know, he made a joke. He's like, "You can't find a Greek mystic these days," and you you kind of can. Peter Kingsley is definitely in that category, <laughs> but they they would look at how entanglement was something that these philosophers and thinkers were talking about in the magic and alchemical traditions 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's radical to a lot of people because we think that quantum physics is when that kind of uh, those thoughts or ideas were really concretized. But they, no, they magic was, it's got its fingerprints all over this stuff. Yeah, and it, it but see, you have to, there you have to distinguish between experience and modeling it or theorizing it. And that's where I think our scientific culture has a hard time because they can't imagine people sharing the same kind of ecstatic experience in, you know, seventh century Greece and, and contemporary US. Mm-hmm. Where I I assume that to be the case. I I assume there people do have the same ecstatic experiences. They just frame them differently and they they model them differently and they probably understand them differently. But a human being is capable of the same sorts of of, of extraordinary things. Well, so so we tend to imagine that our back to what we were just saying, our culture is modern and evolved and the a penultimate experience and we've just been doing this a long time and i you know i often say that our culture is spiritually stupid (laughs) so i i'm not there don't don't come to me for how highly evolved and grand we are i i think we're stupid say more well this scientism this idea that only the only thing that exists are things that that we can measure and quantify and and replicate it's just nonsense it's it's the opposite of the truth of things where what we can really say is true is our experience and you know um i think therefore i am you know (laughs) cogito ergo sum i mean i I am conscious therefore i exist you know i mean that's what we really know we don't we don't know this We, we 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 can speculate about this other stuff and we can move things around and make cool things, but so what? I mean, look at those cool things have done to us and done to our culture. Some pretty nasty, nasty stuff. Uh, So I know we've got to finish in a, in a, in a bit, but um, the one, one thing I wanted to circle up on is the conversation we were sharing about psychedelics and the, in particular, the aspect of the chemical dimension that, that, that it's only a chemical response. Would you speak a little bit about that? Well, I think, so this is part of the scientism that, you know, what the scientism would say is, oh, well, you, you ingested some masculine or DMT or LSD or whatever it was, and it did things to the neurons in your brain. And you had a, you had this visual hallucination in in your inside your your brain so it's an entirely mechanical kind of molecular deterministic argument without ever saying how any of that happens by the way we, we wouldn't be able you would no no such person would ever be able to say how you get from a chemical to a, a visual mm-hmm. <laughs> of 3 or 4d display but but that's the argument 
where this filter thesis argument is, okay, yeah, the, the molecule or the chemical can certainly do that. We don't know how, but it can also shut down basic brain function and allow other aspects or dimensions of reality to essentially come online that are normally held out, held back. Um, so that that's, I, I, I find it deeply problematic when someone says, oh, he had that experience because he's schizophrenic or mm -hmm. she had that experience mm -hmm. because she was on LSD or she had that experience because she was struck by lightning. I'm like, what, what? what? What, what does that explain? How do you get from point A to point B? And what the filter thesis says is, well, actually what point A does is shut things down and then point B can rush in. They're not causally related, actually. They're, they're correlated. You need the shutdown to let the other stuff rush in, but one isn't causing the other. So that it's that difference between causation and correlation. You know, John, I mean, this is a, this is a, this is an analogy, but it's a good one. I, I know you've seen it, the, the Jill Bolte-Taylor TED Talk. You know, what she basically says is, as her left hemisphere was shutting down, this mystical nirvana was just coming online, and she was sort of swimming in this ocean of mind. And then as the left hemisphere came back online, it shut out that, that ocean of, of, of mind. So you, you, you couldn't have both states of consciousness at the same time, but as you shut the rational, egoic, linguistic side of your, your brain down, this other one could come online. It didn't mean that the stroke caused the nirvana. That's not what she's arguing. She's arguing that you need to shut down this side so that the nirvana can come through this other side, you know, and, and, and kind of come online. That's a different argument. And I think we're caught in this linear causal, causal chain worldview where we think this causes, this causes, this causes this. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, that's actually not true. Um, it looks like that. I, I get that, but no, probably not. Well, so where is Eslin today? That's the question I always get. Uh, the answer is, I don't know. Um, I, I'm certainly part of that leadership and I certainly care about that question. We have been struggling for two years like the rest of the world with the pandemic. You know, we've just been trying to stay alive, trying to stay viable. Um, we're just coming back, you know, 2022, late 2021 with workshops and trying to be alive and be active again. We're trying to be more and more relevant to the contemporary world. We're trying to address all of these questions we've been asking in this last hour and a half. Um, and I think the challenge is what is the cutting edge? Mm -hmm. What is the new counterculture? And how do, we, how do we stay relevant and not just become another arm of the, of the culture, yet another voice in a common, um chorus you know we do, once we do that i don't really see why there should be an esalen um i mean i think there should be an esalen saying something else or saying something that that adds to that but it's not that yeah that's uh, that's what i think jung said this at some point that it becomes the mouthpiece of the culture and it does seem like 
nobody captures the flag is an attitude that can try at least to not become so consumed by that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think people who describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious today, I mean, I think they're very genuine and honest about that, but I don't think anybody really knows what it means. And yeah, it's, it's having trouble in it. Yeah. And so I think a place like Eslam could help articulate that and help yeah. people figure out what that might mean. So maybe that's part of what Eslin should be. I don't, I of course don't know what Eslin should be. I think that remains to be seen. And like I said earlier, I don't think you you consciously construct a counterculture. I think you're at the right place at the right time. And the zeitgeist, as the Germans used to say, you 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 have to honor the time and, and the time has to call out um, a particular set of ideas and, and figures. Well, something something wild is happening in the territory of psychedelics right now. And absolutely. I think the psychedelic renaissance, as they call it, is very much a a potential part of this. I think it could go very wrong, oh, wow. uh, but I think it could go very right. And it's probably going to go a little both. Right. Um, and um, <laughs> that's, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, there's going to be some tragedies there and there's some going to be some ecstasies and there's going to be a lot of good and, and some bad come out of that. And because, because we're human, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to fuck it up, John. Um, but we're also going to get it right. I think. You know, we're going to probably do both. That, that's certainly the arena that I want to be navigating. I'm, I'm, of course, that may be the LSD talking right now, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, see, you're not. That's not your thought. That's that's that's, that's something else. Still thinking. Yeah, that's right. That may be Plato or some reincarnated sheep. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, Jeff. I, I let me. Is there any place you want to direct people to? You want to talk about this conference? You want to talk? Oh, about please, uh, please, please go to um, Archives of the Impossible. Um, I think it's .edu, and please register for our conference, which is in March, and we have three webinars in February, and it's all about how to think about the the paranormal or the anomalous, and kind of weave these into the social sciences and the humanities and the sciences and and make this stuff stick in the academy. So it's exciting. I think it's going to be, we have seven plenary speakers. We have three webinars. If you're in Houston, please consider just coming to the conference, March 3rd through the 6th. But if you don't want to come, please consider registering online and, and uh, watching and listening to one of the plenaries. Mm -hmm. And also I'll include your website and Anything else you want to point people towards, Jeff? Oh, I'm, I'm good, John. I'm good. <laughs> I know that. I know that. I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for my jacket. That's my next That's my next beacon in life, is to just work towards the jacket. I got a lot of your books on this shelf back here, man. We've got a lot of opportunities to, okay. uh, to get together and explore. But I got to tell you, I just got through the longest. So Yes, you did. That's you. the longest book. It's, that's the longest one ever. It works well as a doorstop if you for not if you have no other use for it. I'm grateful, Jeff. Thanks for all the work you do, man. All right, John. Be well.